This is Gynecologic Healthcare, Chapter 14, Menopause, Segment 2, which starts on page 273 with midlife health issues. Health risks change for women at midlife, partly due to the changed hormonal milieu and partly due to other normal aging processes. In particular, women at this point in life are at greater risk for developing heart disease, osteoporosis, and diabetes. Weight management is also a significant issue. See Chapter 9 for a full discussion of routine health screening for midlife women. Overweight and obesity. Although women tend to associate increased weight with postmenopause, weight gain in midlife is primarily the result of lifestyle changes and aging processes. Regardless of racial background or body size, midlife women gain an average of 1.5 pounds each year during the fifth and sixth decade. This weight increase is partly due to the decrease in muscle mass that occurs with age and the associated decrease in rest resting metabolic rate and partly due to a decrease in activity that often accompanies midlife. Menopause-associated sleep disturbance, lack of estrogen, and mood disorders may also contribute to weight gain. Maintaining one's weight through midlife usually requires a reduction in caloric intake and an increase in activity. Not only does weight often increase at midlife, the tendency for central fat distribution is also heightened. Premenopausal women typically have a gynoid lower body adipose tissue distribution that is primarily in the hips and thighs, or a pear-shaped body. As women age, however, adipose tissue is more in the android pattern, redistributing and accumulating at the waist, apple-shaped body. Abdominal adiposity and weight gain at midlife are significant issues. Obesity and central adiposity are associated with adverse metabolic outcomes, including dysglycemia, dyslipidemia, and hypertension, as well as increased risk of cardiovascular disease and some cancers. Increased weight and central body changes may potentiate negative body image concerns for women. In addition, women who are overweight or obese have a greater frequency of vasomotor symptoms. The American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Obesity Society have joint clinical guidelines for interventions and counseling for individuals who are overweight and obese. The American Heart Association also provides guidance for clinicians to counsel patients on dietary patterns. Cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of mortality for both women and men in the United States. Cardiovascular disease is an inclusive term that refers to conditions such as hypertension, valvular heart disease, and coronary heart disease, which lead to angina or myocardial infarction, stroke, arrhythmias, congestive heart failure, peripheral artery disease, aortic disease, arterial and venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and congenital heart defects. More than 400,000 women in the United States die from coronary cardiovascular disease each year. Due to advancements in prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, U.S. rates of cardiovascular disease mortality have declined in recent years. <coughs> Excuse me. Nevertheless, cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of disability-adjusted life years, a measure that considers both morbidity and mortality among women in the United States. Notably, cardiovascular disease disproportionately affects women in vulnerable populations, including those who have low socioeconomic status 
or whose race and ethnicity is non-white. The risk for cardiovascular disease in women significantly increases after menopause. Menopause does not appear to solely increase cardiovascular risk. Chronologic aging also plays a role. Lipid changes in postmenopausal women include increases in total cholesterol, triglycerides, apolipoprotein B, and LDL cholesterol. HDL cholesterol levels may also change after menopause. However, the HDL cholesterol changes are not in a consistent direction, and their implications are less clear than other postmenopausal lipid changes. As women age, they experience a faster increase in left ventricular wall thickness and more age-related concentric remodeling than men. Postmenopausal women also have decreased elasticity in the vascular system and associated hypertension. Prevention of risk factors and treatment of existing risk factors are key to reducing cardiovascular disease associated morbidity and mortality. Major risk factors for cardiovascular disease include age, cigarette smoking, physical inactivity, family history of premature cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, and diabetes. Female-specific cardiovascular disease risk factors include premature menopause and preeclampsia. Type 2 diabetes. The likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes increases with age and may be further increased by the biochemical, metabolic, and phenotypical changes associated with menopause. This disease disproportionately affects women of minority, racial, and ethnic groups, including Black, Native American, Latina, Asian American, and Pacific Islander women. General risk factors for developing diabetes include overweight and obesity, which includes BMI of 25 or greater, physical inactivity, history of gestational diabetes, or polycystic ovary syndrome, family history of diabetes, age of 45 years or older, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. In addition to significantly increasing the risk for cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, diabetes increases the risk for developing infections, foot ulcers, peripheral vascular disease, peripheral neuropathy, nephropathy, and retinopathy. Individuals with impaired fasting glucose levels which is 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter, or impaired glucose tolerance, which is two-hour post-75 gram glucose load of 140 to 199, are identified as having pre-diabetes. It is important to encourage lifestyle modifications such as increasing activity levels, dietary changes, and weight loss for women with pre-diabetes because such changes have been shown to delay or even prevent the onset of diabetes. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommends weight loss as the primary management goal for women with pre-diabetes through therapeutic lifestyle changes, medications, surgery, or a combination of these methods. Insulin resistance is reduced with weight loss and can prevent progression to diabetes and improve lipids and blood pressure. Managing diabetes can be more difficult for women after menopause. The effects of the hormonal changes of menopause on glucose hemostasis, insulin resistance, and insulin secretion are not completely understood. Decreased estrogen, relative increased androgenicity, weight gain, and changes in body composition may all contribute to this increase 
to the increased glucose levels identified during and after the transition to postmenopause. The treatment goals for diabetes are to prevent complications and optimize quality of life. Lifestyle management includes weight loss if needed, healthy eating, physical activity, and exercise. Smoking cessation. Most postmenopausal women with type 2 diabetes will need pharmacologic treatment. Metformin is the preferred first-line therapeutic option. Initiation of statin therapy in women older than age 40 with diabetes and controlling blood pressure are recommended to further reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and complications from diabetes. Cancer. In 2019, the types of cancer most commonly causing mortality among women in the United States were estimated to be lung and bronchus at 23%, followed by breast at 15%, colon and rectum, 8%, and pancreatic, 8%. The types of cancer expected to be the most frequently diagnosed were breast cancer at 30%, lung and bronchus, 13%, 13%, colon and rectum, 8%, and uterine, 7%. Although mortality rates from cancer have decreased overall among women, death rates from uterine cancer have been increasing for more than a decade. The risk of developing cancer, including breast and gynecologic cancers, increases as women age, with approximately 80% of cancers being diagnosed in people 55 years and older. Any postmenopausal bleeding must be excuse me, evaluated for potential endometrial or uterine cancer. See chapters 26 and 29 for more information. Additionally, chapter 9 presents cancer screening recommendations. Chapter 17 provides information on breast cancer. And chapter 29 addresses gynecologic cancers. Osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is the most common bone disease in humans and is characterized by a low bone mass deterioration of bone tissue, and disruption of bone architecture resulting in reduced bone strength that decreases the risk, I'm sorry, increases the risk for fracture. Osteoporosis is the most common cause of morbidity among postmenopausal women and osteoporotic fractures account for a large portion of morbidity and mortality among postmenopausal women, especially women older than 65 years. Osteoporosis risk factors are listed on table 14.3. So let's read them. Potentially modifiable risk factors are excessive thinness, which is BMI less than 21, hypogonadal states, in other words, anorexia, athletic amenorrhea, premature menopause, androgen insensitivity, hyperprolactemia, Turner and Kleinfelter syndromes. Nulliparity, lifestyle factors such as cigarette smoking, excessive alcohol or caffeine intake, sedentary activity level, frequent falling, inadequate calcium or vitamin D intake. Medications such as thyroid hormone, corticosteroids, anticonvulsants, aluminum containing antacids, lithium, methotrexate, gonadotropin releasing hormone, cholestyramine, heparin, warfarin, Depomedroxyprogesterone acetate, which is Depo-Provera, as you all know, premenopausal tamoxifen, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and proton pump inhibitors. 
chronic diseases. For example, endocrine disorders, gastrointestinal disorders, bone disorders, chronic liver disease, seizure disorders, prolonged immobility, eating disorders, chronic renal failure. So then there are non-modifiable risk factors. Advanced age, female gender, race with white and Asian women at greatest risk. Personal history of fracture during adulthood. Family history of osteoporosis. First degree relative with a history of fracture. Genetic diseases, for example, cystic fibrosis, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, osteogenesis imperfecta, porphyria, Gaucher disease, hemochromatosis, Marfan syndrome, homocystinuria, hematologic disorders, for example, hemophilia, sickle cell, multiple myeloma, thalassemia, leukemia, and lymphomas. Rheumatologic and autoimmune disease, for example, systemic lupus erythematosus, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. All right. Osteoporosis is categorized as primary, secondary, or idiopathic. Primary osteoporosis is associated with aging and affects women much more significantly than men. Adults achieve peak bone mass in their late 20s to mid-30s, after which time the rates of bone resorption and formation become relatively stable. Both men and women require estrogen for optimal bone health. As women age into their 30s and 40s, their bone resorption rate begins to exceed that of bone formation, resulting in a slow decline of bone mass. Women also experience a time-limited rapid bone loss triggered by menopause-associated estrogen deficiency. The rate of bone loss is most significant in the first year after menopause, between 1 and 5%, then slows to approximately 1% per year. In contrast, bone mass is lost in men at a rate of 0.2 to 0.5% per year. Secondary osteoporosis occurs in response to medication or disease processes that interfere with the normal process of bone formation and can affect women or men at any age. Idiopathic osteoporosis is characterized by low bone density and fracture in young adults when no other cause is identified. Screening recommendations for osteoporosis can be found in Chapter 9, Bone Mineral Density, Testing by Dual Energy X-ray Absorptionmetry, Absorptionmetry, or DXA, is a technique used to evaluate central BMD at the spine and hip and is a vital component of the diagnosis and management of osteoporosis. Although DXA can also be used to evaluate wrist bone mineral density, central testing is much more predictive of overall bone mineral bone mineral density, and fracture risk. Quantitative computed tomography, or CT scan, can be used to perform spine measurements and is particularly useful for testing individuals with arthritis because it's less likely to reflect osteocytes. Bone mineral density results are reported as T-scores and Z-scores. The T-score identifies the number of standard deviations that the patient's bone mineral density is greater than or less than a young adult gender-matched norm. The Z-score is compared to the BMD of an age, sex, and ethnicity-matched referent population. 
Low bone mass osteopenia is present when the T-score is in the range of negative 1 to negative 2.5. Osteoporosis is present when the T-score is negative 2.5 or less. Severe or established osteoporosis is present when the T-score is 2.5 or less and low trauma fractures are present. T-scores are used in men older than age 50 and in postmenopausal women because they are the standard used to determine the risk for fractures. The International Society for Clinical Densitometry recommends using Z-scores instead of T-scores for premenopausal women, children, and men younger than 50 years, with Z-scores of negative 2 or less defined as below the expected range for age, and those greater than negative 2 defined as within the expected range for age. Z-scores are helpful for identifying individuals who should undergo an evaluation for secondary causes of osteoporosis. Women with osteoporosis are at increased risk for fracture. Although osteoporosis and low bone mass by themselves are painless and not functionally problematic, the risk for fracture puts a patient at significant risk. Following a hip fracture, there is an 8.4 to 36% increase in mortality and a two and a half fold increased risk for a future fracture. Among survivors of such fractures, approximately 20% require long-term nursing home care and only 40% fully regain their pre-fracture level of independence. Patient indication for preventing bone loss. Prevention is a key component of osteoporosis management for premenopausal and postmenopausal women, education should focus on prevention strategies, which is in box 14.3. And they include adequate intake of calcium, 1,200 milligrams per day in postmenopausal women, adequate intake of vitamin D, 800 to 1,000 international units per day for adults 50 years and older, weight-bearing and resistance exercise, fall prevention, avoiding tobacco, moderate alcohol intake, fewer than two drinks per day for women. Exercise is site-specific and needs to be continued to maintain bone strength. Management of bone loss. Medication management is recommended for women with T-scores of negative 2.5 or less and for those with hip or vertebral fractures. For women with T-scores in the low bone mass range, which is negative 1.0 to negative 2.5, medication is recommended if they also have fractures or at high risk for fracture. In other words, immobilized, taking glucocorticoids, or at high risk for falls. For women with T-scores in the low bone mass range, use of the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool, or FRACS, is recommended to identify those who would realize a cost-effective benefit from initiating medication therapy. The FRACS tool is accessible online and is applicable to women who have not previously been treated with medications. Information is entered for 11 different risk factors, plus the hip raw BMD value to calculate the 10-year probability for a hip fracture and the 10-year probability for any type of major osteoporotic fracture. If the hip fracture probability is equal to or greater than 3% or if the risk for any major osteoporotic fracture is equal to or greater than 20%, 
medication therapy is recommended. The treatment decision must be weighed against the clinical presentation, the evaluation of potential secondary causes, and with the clinician recognizing the limitations of FRACS. The estimated fracture risk identified by FRACS provides an alert to the clinician that may be useful, that may be useful, that treatment may be useful. The intervention threshold, that is, the point at which the treatment should be started for a specific individual is determined mutually between the clinician and the patient. This threshold is different for each patient and is based on multiple factors, including the risks identified previously and the FRAX score. Many of the variables considered in the FRAX instrument are dichotomous, in other words, yes, no, and do not capture variables that increase risk along a continuum. For example, higher doses of corticosteroid increased risk for fractures. Additionally, the T-score used in the FRAX calculations is not the same as that obtained with the DEXA testing. However, a conversion program on the NOF website can be downloaded and the converted T-score should then be entered into the FRAX program. Repeat bone, men, bone, mat, bone mineral density testing for osteoporosis is recommended every two years after treatment is initiated to monitor the effects of therapy. Table 14.4 summarizes the available pharmacologic treatment options for osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. Combination therapy initiated by an osteoporosis specialist is also possible, usually a biphosphonate Alendronate or risodronate is combined with a drug from another class, for example, estrogen or raloxifen. So just to very briefly go over these, you will want to review them for yourself. There's alendronate, which is Fosamax, and it's 5 milligrams orally daily or 35 milligrams orally weekly. Um, there's also Fosamax plus D. Then there's Actinel, which is Rhizodronate, and that is 5 milligrams orally daily or 35 milligrams orally weekly, or 150 milligrams orally monthly. Then there's Reclast, which is Zoledronic Acid, and that is 5 milligrams intramuscularly once every two years. Treatment is 5 milligrams intravenously. I'm sorry, did I say intramuscularly? Scratch that, it's intravenously once every two years or five milligrams intravenously once a year for treatment. This is contraindicated in women with hypocalcemia. Then there's prolia, which is denosumab, and the treatment is 60 milligrams subcutaneously every six months. Then there's treatments for spine-specific therapy, which is Boniva and Avista, and then unable to use oral therapy. There's a few more. So moving on, um, thyroid disease. Thyroid disease is another health issue that must be considered at midlife. Thyroid disease affects women more than men, and its incidence increases with age. Subclinical hypothyroidism is also more common as women age. Thyroid disorders can prevent with many of the same symptoms that occur during the transition to postmenopause, such as menstrual cycle changes or irregularities, disruption in sleep, 
fatigue, mood swings, heat intolerance, and palpitations. Although there is not a general consensus regarding who should be screened for thyroid disorders, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommends that screening should be considered in older patients, especially women, and the American Thyroid Association recommends that both women and men older than 35 years be screened every five years. They also recommend that clinicians maintain a high index of suspicion for thyroid disorders in midlife and in postmenopausal women. Measurement of TSH is the initial step in assessing thyroid function. Depression. Despite the fact that most women progress through the transition to menopause without psychological symptoms, some women report symptoms of depression, anxiety, stress, or a decreased sense of well-being. There is an increased risk of depressive symptoms among, during the transition to postmenopause, particularly among women with a history of depression, premenstrual syndrome, or postpartum depression. Factors that may contribute to depressive symptoms, which include vasomotor symptoms, factors that may contribute to depressive symptoms include vasomotor symptoms, sleep disturbances, which can also be a symptom of clinical depression, other medical conditions, being a smoker, being obese, potential midlife stresses, such as financial concerns, employment issues, relationship problems or family changes, or health issues in oneself or family members. There appears to be a bi-directional association between vasomotor symptoms and depressive symptoms. The risk of clinical depression may also be increased around the transition to postmenopause. However, this has been the subject of less research than depressive symptoms. Screening for such psychological symptoms, depression and anxiety should be included when a woman presents with symptoms that appear to be related to the postmenopause transition. Moving on to patient edu education for lifestyle approaches to manage menopause-related symptoms. Several lifestyle approaches have been demonstrated to reduce menopause-related symptoms, and many of these approaches also afford additional health benefits, such as reducing the risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or osteoporosis. Lifestyle approaches may encompass dietary changes, exercise, vitamins, or supplements, vaginal lubricants, and moisturizers, changes in clothing or environment, smoking cessation, stress management techniques, proper sleep hygiene, and activities to enhance mental function. Educating women about these approaches to symptom management may reduce symptoms enough to either obviate the need for pharmaco pharmacotherapy or reduce the doses of pharma pharmacotherapeutics needed to reduce symptoms to manageable levels. Dietary changes. Many women report perceived hot flashes, trigger, hot flash triggers that include hot drinks, spicy foods, caffeine, alcohol, and food additives such as monosodium glutamate, sulfites, and sodium nitrates. However, limited evidence has been found among large groups of women to support a causative relationship. Avoidance or moderate intake of these substances may be recommended in an attempt to provide some relief from symptoms for women who are willing to implement non-pharmacologic strategies to manage their symptoms. Increased water intake is also recommended because of the augmented insensible loss of fluids through sweating among women who experience hot flashes. 
Despite limited data supporting the contention that consuming cool drinks improves menopause-related symptoms, water intake, especially cold water, appears to reduce symptoms such as skin dryness and may reduce the discomfort associated with hot flashes and sweating. The usual water intake of six to eight glasses per day should be recommended. However, for women who experience urinary incontinence, water consumption may need to be restricted for social occasions when there is no easy access to a bathroom. Exercise. Levels of physical activity not consistently linked to frequency are not... I'm starting again. Exercise. Levels of physical activity are not consistently linked to frequency of menopause-related symptoms. A Cochrane review of five randomized controlled trials found insufficient evidence to state definitively that exercise is an effective treatment for menopause-related vasomotor symptoms. Regular physical activity doesn't reduce cardiovascular and stroke events, osteoporosis risk, and breast and colon cancer risk, while also improving metabolic profile, balanced muscle strength, and sleep quality. Furthermore, regular physical activity assists with maintaining a healthy weight, relieving stress, reducing moodiness, and improving cognition. The overall benefits of exercise are valuable even if they do not improve menopause-related symptoms. Clinicians should recommend that women engage in at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise and advise patients that two weekly sessions of resistance training have bone health benefits. Vitamins and supplements. Selected vitamins and supplements may be useful to improving health. However, there's a lack of data demonstrating the effectiveness of vitamins and supplements for treating menopause-related vasomotor symptoms. Although oral vitamin E has not consistently been shown to improve hot flashes, vaginal vitamin E may improve vulvovaginal symptoms of postmenopause. Omega-3 supplements may reduce the frequency and severity of night sweats. They do not, but they do not decrease hot flushes or improve, improve sweet sleep quality or quality of life. The Institute of Medicine recommends daily intake of calcium 1,200 milligrams per day, and vitamin D, 600 IUs a day to maintain bone health and prevent fracture in women older than 50 years. In women older than 70 years, 800 IU per day of vitamin D is recommended. The International Menopause Society recommends 800 to 1,000 IUs per day of vitamin D in postmenopausal women and 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams per day of elemental calcium. Limited evidence supports the use of vitamins and supplements for the prevention of chronic disease and all-cause mortality. In addition, a potential for harm arises with excessive intake of some nutrients. Because of this, limiting, limiting dietary supplementation and encouraging midlife women to maintain a healthy diet that includes fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy products, whole grains, fish, and low-fat total fat with limited salt and alcohol intake is recommended. A balanced healthy diet appears to have a greater health benefit than taking vitamins and supplements and is associated with reduced rates of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and colon and breast cancers. Moving on, vaginal lubricants and moisturizers. After menopause, about 50% of women will experience symptoms 
of vulvovaginal atrophy as a result of decreasing estrogen levels. The International Society for the Study of Women's Health and NAMS now recommend the terminology genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM, rather than vulvovaginal atrophy or atrophic vaginitis, to encompass the physiologic genitourinary tract changes and the variety of vulvovaginal, for example, dryness, burning, irritation, sexual, for example, inadequate lubrication, pain, and urinary, for example, urgency, dysuria, urinary tract infection, symptoms associated with decreased estrogen levels. GSM, or genitourinary syndrome of menopause, can have a significant effect on interpersonal relationships, daily activities, quality of life, and sexual function. Additional information about GSM can be found in Chapter 21. Women with mild symptoms of GSM often respond well to vaginal lubricants and moisturizers. These can be offered as an initial treatment option. Vaginal lubricants can be used to relieve the friction and dyspareunia that results from vaginal dryness during intercourse. Several non-hormonal water, silicone, and oil-based lubricants and vaginal moisturizers are available as over-the-counter products. Some vaginal lubricants contain capacitin. Capsicin? Sorry. Capacitin is a, a place in Haiti. Capsicin, which can cause significant burning for some women who have GSM. These lubricants should be avoided. Longer-acting vaginal moisturizers may be more appropriate for some women. These products are applied several times weekly, not just at the time of sexual activity. The moisturizers replenish and maintain moisture in the vaginal epithelial cells and provide longer relief while mimicking natural vaginal secretions. Moisturizers may be particularly beneficial for women who experience daily discomfort and they can reduce symptoms of vaginitis by supporting a normal pH. The therapy choice should be individualized based on symptom severity, safety, effectiveness, and the woman's preference. Women must be cautioned against using petroleum jelly-based products, in other words, Vaseline, because these preparations can injure vaginal tissue, are not easily removed, and may increase the incidence of bacterial vaginosis. Use of other products that contain additives such as fragrance, dye, spermicide, or flavors should also be discouraged because they often cause vaginitis or irritation. Douching is not effective for moisturizing and will remove normal flora, thereby increasing the risk for infection. Because few tolerability studies are available for over-the-counter products, testing for 24 hours on a small skin area prior to intravaginal use is recommended. Studies have identified a correlation between cytotoxic and inflammatory vaginal epithelial cell changes with use of hyperosmolar vaginal lubricants. Given that hyperosmolar products can also be irritating, low osmolality products without propylene glycol may be preferred. In other words, allocadabra, alo good clean love, pre-seed, slippery stuff, Liquid organic. Natural oils include olive, mineral, and coconut, and they provide a low-cost option for regular sexual activity and moisturizing. Clothing and environment. 
wearing layered clothes, breathable fabrics, for example, cotton, linen, or moisture-wicking cooling fabrics is recommended to reduce the discomfort associated with hot flashes and sweats. Avoiding turtlenecks, fabrics that do not allow circulation or absorb sweat, are also recommended. Keeping the room temperature cool, opening a window and or using a fan to circulate air, and using chilling towels and a chilling pillow can help to reduce core body temperature and may be beneficial in reducing the vasomotor symptoms related to menopause. Smoking cessation. Smoking is associated with increased morbidity and mortality, especially related to cardiovascular disease and cancers. Increased rate of bone loss and increased prevalence of vasomotor symptoms. Various pharmacologic and behavioral smoking cessation interventions are available. Ultimately, the best treatment is the one that is of the greatest interest to a specific woman. She needs to be both interested in quitting and motivated to quit. The U.S. Preventive Task Service Task Force recommends clinicians provide non-pregnant women who want to quit smoking with both pharmacotherapy, such as nicotine replacement therapy, and behavioral intervention. Combining the two intervention types is more effective than either alone. Behavioral interventions shown to significantly improve cessation rates include in-person support and counseling, telephone counseling, and printed self-help materials. Stress management. Stress and anxiety have been associated with increases in the severity and frequency of hot flashes. Additionally, stress can negatively affect quality of life by causing sleep disturbances, decreasing libido, and aggravating medical conditions such as cardiovascular disease. At midlife, women may face multiple stressors such as health changes for themselves or family members, financial concerns, loss of a parent, children leaving home, or relationship struggles with a partner, child, or parent. Managing stress must be individualized because each woman may find different tactics helpful. Women are encouraged to identify their own life stressors and find stress-relieving measures that work for them. Some suggestions include regular exercise, meditation, relaxation techniques such as deep breathing or paced respiration, yoga, tai chi, taking a lukewarm bath, reading, having a massage, seeking support from friends or activities related to spirituality or religion. Many women find that yoga breathing, a variation of paced respirations, enhances relaxation and reduces hot flashes. Yoga breathing consists of a deep inhalation over a count of five, holding the breath for a count of seven, and slowly exhaling over a count of nine. A recent review of systematic reviews and meta-analysis found that hypnosis, paced respiration, and cognitive behavioral therapy can significantly improve hot flashes. Yoga, relaxation, and mindfulness may also decrease hot flashes. However, additional research is necessary to confirm their benefit. Sleep. Evaluating the cause of sleep disruptions is important for development of a management plan. If sleep disruption is related to hot flashes or other menopause-related symptoms, control of those symptoms will usually restore normal sleep patterns. 
light blankets, cotton sleepwear, or moisture wicking pajamas, and a well-ventilated room are recommended for reducing nocturnal hot flashes. However, if sleep disruption is unrelated to hot flashes, such as sleep apnea, a more generalized approach is needed. Developing good sleep hygiene is especially important for perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. Sleep hygiene refers to actions that cue the mind that it is time for sleep and allow the part of the brain that controls the body during sleep to take over. Developing regular routines prior to bedtime, such as brushing the teeth or changing into sleepwear and doing something relaxing, such as paced respirations or progressive relaxation, guided imagery, taking a warm bath, reading a relaxing book, or drinking a warm beverage without caffeine can help cue the mind that it is time to sleep. Similarly, activities that tend to stimulate the mind should be avoided just before bed, such as watching television, using electronic devices, doing work or exercise. The bedroom should be reserved for sleep and sexual activities. This consideration is especially important for individuals who have difficulty falling asleep because doing work or watching television in bed can have a stimulating effect. Establishing, establishing regular times for sleep and waking is also important for developing good sleep patterns because this consistency will facilitate the development of normal daily routines. Good luck for all of us midwives on that one. Lifestyle changes that can help restore sleep patterns include avoiding caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine. The effects of caffeine can last as long as 20 hours in some individuals, so total elimination is preferable. Although alcohol can have a sedative effect during the first half of the night, it may cause interruptions in the second half including fragmented sleep and rebound awakening due to the effects of alcohol on the homeostatic regulation of sleep. Similarly, nicotine can prolong sleep onset and reduce overall sleep duration. Exercise can enhance sleep quality, reduce sleep latency, and increase the amount of time spent in deep sleep. However, timing of exercise is important because engaging in exercise close to bedtime will increase sleep latency. Sleep restriction therapy can be considered to help reestablish a restorative sleep pattern. Use of relaxation techniques prior to bedtime may also benefit women with sleep difficulties. Additionally, acupuncture may improve sleep among perimenopausal and postmenopausal women with sleep disturbances. It is also important to educate women that they may require less sleep as they age. Although the amount of sleep required by adults is very individualized and it is difficult to specify an exact amount of sleep that an individual may need, the National Sleep Foundation provides general guidelines. The recommended sleep duration is seven to nine hours from age 26 to 64 years and seven to eight hours for those 65 and older. However, it may be appropriate for some women who are 26 to 64 years to sleep six to 10 hours per night and for those 65 or older to sleep five to nine hours per night. Mental function. Memory and cognitive function tend to decline with advancing age. Difficulty remembering or concentrating commonly occur among women during the transition to postmenopause, and it will often return to premenopause levels after they reach postmenopause. Although poor mental functioning is often associated with lack of sleep or high levels of stress, 
Cognitive impairment can also be related to a myriad of medical problems. Thus, the first step in evaluating mental function is to complete a comprehensive assessment to identify potential causes of the cognitive deficit. Some evidence suggests that women who engage in certain activities or lifestyle changes experience improved memory function and protection against dementia. Maintaining an extensive social network and remaining physically active and mentally active by participating in activities that keep the mind engaged, such as intellectually stimulating work, puzzles, or other activities can help maintain cognitive function, increasing the intake of omega-3 fatty acids, not smoking, consuming alcohol only in moderation, adapting lifestyle measures to reduce the risk for hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol, have the added benefit of protecting against dementia and cognitive decline. This is the end of segment two of this chapter. There will be one more segment, and that will be segment three.